Section 7 of Prolegomena to Any Future Metaphysics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Fano Jahangiri. Prolegomena to Any Future Metaphysics by Immanuel Kant. Translated by Paul Carros. Section 7. Third part of the Transcendental Problem. 50 to 54. 2. The Cosmological Idea. 50. This product of pure reason, in its transcendence use, is its most remarkable curiosity. It serves as a very powerful agent to rouse philosophy from its dogmatic slumber and to stimulate it to the arduous task of undertaking a critic of reason itself. I term this idea cosmological because it always takes its object only from the sensible world and does not use any other than those whose object is given to sense, consequently it remains in this respect in its native home. It does not become transcendent and is therefore so far not mere idea. Whereas to conceive the soul as a simple substance already means to conceive such an object, the simple, as cannot be presented to the senses. Yet the cosmological idea extends the connection of the conditioned with its condition, whether the connection is mathematical or dynamical, so far that experience never can keep up with it. It is therefore with regard to this point always an idea whose object never can be adequately given in any experience. 51. In the first place, the use of a system of categories becomes here so obvious and unmistakable that even if there were not several other proofs of it, this alone would sufficiently prove it indispensable in the system of pure reason. There are only four such transcendent ideas as there are so many classes of categories, in each of which, however, they refer only to the absolute completeness of the series of the conditions for a given condition. In analogy to these cosmological ideas, there are only four kinds of dialectical assertions of pure reason, which as they are dialectical, thereby prove that to each of them, on equally specious principles of pure reason, a contradictory assertion stands opposed. As all the metaphysical art of the most subtile distinction cannot prevent this opposition, it composed the philosopher to recur to the first sources of pure reason itself. This antinomy, not arbitrarily invented, but founded in the nature of human reason and hence unavoidable and never-ceasing, contains the following four theses together with their antithesis. 1. Thesis. The world has, as to time and space, a beginning limit antithesis the world is as to time and space infinite two thesis everything in the world consists of elements that are simple antithesis there is nothing simple but everything is composite three thesis there are in the world causes through freedom antithesis there is no liberty but all is nature four thesis in the series of the war causes, there is some necessary being. Antithesis, there is nothing necessary in the world, but in the series, all is incidental. 52. A. Here is the most singular phenomenon of human reason, no other instance of which can be shown in any other use. 
If we, as is commonly done, represent to ourselves the appearances of the sensible world as things in themselves, if we assume the principles of their combination as principles universally valid of things in themselves, and not merely of experience, as is usually, nay, without our critic, unavoidably done, there arises an unexpected conflict which never can be removed in the common dogmatical way, because the thesis as well as the antithesis can be shown by equally clear, evident, and irresistible proofs, for I pledge myself as to the correctness of all these proofs, and reason therefore perceives that it is divided with itself, a stated which the skeptic rejoices, but which must make the critical philosopher pause and feel ill at ease. 52b. We may blunder in various ways in metaphysics without any fear of being detected in falsehood. For we never can be refuted by experience if we but avoid self-contradiction, which in synthetical though purely fictitious propositions may be done whenever the concepts which we connect are mere ideas, that cannot be given in their whole content in experience. For how can we make out by experience whether the world is from eternity or had a beginning, whether matter is infinitely divisible or consists of simple parts? Such concept cannot be given in any experience, be it ever so extensive, and consequently the falsehood either of the positive or the negative proposition cannot be discovered by this touchstone. The only possible way in which reason could have revealed unintentionally its secret dialectics, falsely announced as dogmatics, would be when it were made to ground an assertion upon a universally admitted principle, and to deduce the exact contrary with the greatest accuracy of inference from another which is equally granted. This is actually here the case with regard to four natural ideas of reasons, whence four assertions on the one side, and as many counter-assertions on the other arise, each consistently following from universally acknowledged principles. Thus they reveal by the use of these principles the dialectical illusion of pure reason which would otherwise forever remain concealed. This is therefore a decisive experiment which must necessarily expose any error lying hidden in the assumptions of reason. Contradictory propositions cannot both be false except the concept which is the subject of both is self-contradictory. For example, the propositions, a square circle is round and a square circle is not round, are both false. For as to the former it is false that the circle is round because it is quadrangular and it is likewise false that it is not round that is angular because it is a circle. For the logical criterion of the impossibility of a concept consists in this, that if we presuppose it, two contradictory propositions both become false, consequently as no middle between them is conceivable, nothing at all is thought by that concept. 52c. The first two antinomies, which I call mathematical because they are concerned with the addition or division of the homogeneous, are founded on such a self-contradictory concept, and hence I explain how it happens that both the thesis and antithesis of the two are false. When I speak of objects in time and in space, it is not of things in themselves, of which I know nothing, but of things in appearance, that is, of experience, as the particular way of cognizing objects which is afforded to man. 
I must not say of what I think in time or in space, that in itself and independent of these my thoughts it exists in space and in time, for in that case I should contradict myself, because space and time together with the appearances in them are nothing existing in themselves and outside of my representations, but are themselves only modes of representation, and it is palpably contradictory to say that a mere mode of representation exists without our representation. Objects of the senses, therefore, exist only in experience, whereas to give them a self-subsisting existence apart from experience or before it is merely to represent to ourselves that experience actually exists apart from experience or before it. Now, if I inquire after the quantity of the world as to space and time, it is equally impossible as regards all my notions to declare it infinite or to declare it finite. For neither assertion can be contained in experience, because experience either of an infinite space or of an infinite time elapsed or again of the boundary of the world by a void space or by an antecedent void time is impossible. These are mere ideas. This quantity of the world, which is determined in either way, should therefore exist in the world itself apart from all experience. This contradicts the notion of a world of senses, which is merely a complex of the appearances whose existence and connection occur only in our representations, that is, in experience, since this latter is not an object in itself, but a mere mode of representation. Hence it follows that as the concept of an absolutely existing world of sense is self-contradictory, the solution of the problem concerning its quantity, whether attempted affirmatively or negatively, is always false. The same holds good of the second antinomy, which relates to the division of phenomena, for these are mere representations and the parts exist merely in their representation, consequently in the division or in a possible experience where they are given, and the division reaches only as far as this latter reaches. To assume that an appearance, e.g. that of body, contains in itself before all experience all the parts which any possible experience can ever reach is to impute to a mere appearance which can exist only in experience an existence previous to experience. In other words, it would mean that mere representations exist before they can be found in our faculty of representation. Such an assertion is self-contradictory, as also every solution of our misunderstood problem, whether we maintain that bodies in themselves consist of an infinite number of parts or of a finite number of simple parts. 53. In the first, the mathematical class of antinomies, the falsehood of the assumption consists in representing in one concept some something self-contradictory as if it were compatible i.e. an appearance as an object in itself but as to the second the dynamical class of antinomies the falsehood of the representation consists in representing as contradictory what is compatible so that as in the former case the opposed assertions are both false in this case on the other hand where they are opposed to one another by mere misunderstanding they may both be true any mathematical connection necessarily presupposes homogeneity of what is connected in the concept of magnitude, while the dynamical one by no means requires the same. When we have to deal with extended magnitudes, all the parts must be homogeneous with one another and with the whole. 
whereas in the connection of cause and effect homogeneity may indeed likewise be found but is not necessary for the concept of causality by means of which something is posited through something else quite different from it at all events does not require it if the objects of the world of sense are taken for things in themselves and the above laws of nature for the laws of things in themselves the contradiction would be unavoidable so also if the subject of freedom were like other objects represented as mere appearance the contradiction would be just as unavoidable for the same predicate would at once be affirmed and denied of the same kind of object in the same sense but if natural necessity is referred merely to appearances and freedom merely to things in themselves no contradiction arises if we at once assume or admit both kinds of causality however difficult or impossible it may be to make the latter kind conceivable as appearance every effect is an event or something that happens in time it must according to the universal law of nature be preceded by a determination of the causality of its cause a state which follows according to a constant law but this determination of the cause as causality must likewise be something that takes place or happens the cause must have begun to act otherwise no succession between it and the effect could be conceived otherwise the effect as well as the causality of the cause would have always existed therefore the determination of the cause to act must also have originated among appearances and must consequently as well as its effect be an event which must again have its cause and so on hence natural necessity must be the condition on which effective causes are determined whereas if freedom is to be a property of certain causes of appearances it must as regards these which are events be a faculty of starting them spontaneously that is without the causality of the cause itself and hence without requiring any other ground to determine its start but then the cause as to its causality must not rank under time determinations of its state that is it cannot be an appearance and must be considered a thing in itself while its effect would be only appearances if without contradiction we can think of the beings of understanding as exercising such an influence on appearances then natural necessity will attach to all connections of cause and effect in the sensuous world though on the other hand freedom can be granted to such cause as is itself not an appearance but the foundation of appearance nature therefore and freedom can without contradiction be attributed to the very same thing but in different relations on one side as a phenomenon on the other as a thing in itself we have in us a faculty which not only stands in connection with its subjective determining grounds that are the natural causes of its actions and is so far the faculty of a being that itself belongs to appearances but is also referred to objective grounds that are only ideas so far as they can determine this faculty a connection which is expressed by the word ought this faculty is called reason and so far as we consider a being man entirely according to this objective determinable reason he cannot be considered as a being of sense but this property is that of a thing in itself of which we cannot comprehend the possibility i mean how the art which however has never yet taken place should determine its activity and can become the cause of actions whose effect is an appearance in the sensible world 
yet the causality of reason would be freedom with regard to the effects in the sensuous world so far as we can consider objective grounds which are themselves ideas as their determinants for its action in that case would not depend upon subjective conditions consequently not upon those of time and of course not upon the law of nature which serves to determine them because grounds of reason give to actions the rule universally according to principles without the influence of the circumstances of either time or place what i adduce here is merely meant as an example to make the thing intelligible and does not necessarily belong to our problem which must be decided from mere concepts independently of the properties which we meet in the actual world now i may say without contradiction that all the actions of rational beings so far as they are appearances occurring in any experience are subject to the necessity of nature but the same actions as regards merely the rational subject and its faculty of acting according to mere reason are free for what is required for the necessity of nature nothing more than the determinability of every event in the world of sense according to constant laws that is a reference to cause in the appearance in this process the thing in itself as its foundation and its causality remain unknown but i say that the law of nature remains whether the rational being is the cause of the effects in the sensuous world from reason that is through freedom or whether it does not determine them on grounds of reason for if the former is the case the action is performed according to maxims the effect of which as appearances is always conformable to constant laws if the latter is the case and the action not performed on principles of reason it is subjected to the empirical laws of the sensibility and in both cases the effects are connected according to constant laws more than this we do not require or know concerning natural necessity but in the former case reason is the cause of these laws of nature and therefore free in the latter the effects follow according to mere natural laws of sensibility because reason does not influence it but reason itself is not determined on that account by the sensibility and is therefore free in this case too freedom is therefore no hindrance to natural law in appearance neither does this law abrogate the freedom of the practical use of reason which is connected with things in themselves as determining grounds thus practical freedom with the freedom in which reason possesses causality according to objectively determining grounds is rescued and yet natural necessity is not in the least curtailed with regard to the very same effects as appearances the same remarks will serve to explain what we had to say concerning transcendental freedom and its compatibility with natural necessity in the same subject but not taken in the same reference for as to this every beginning of the action of a being from objective causes regarded as determining grounds is always a first start though the same action is in the series of appearances only a subordinate start which must be preceded by a state of the cause which determines it and is itself determined in the same manner by another immediately preceding thus we are able in rational beings or in beings generally so far as their causality is determined in them as things in themselves to imagine a faculty of beginning from itself a series of states without falling into contradiction with the laws of nature for the relation of the action to objective grounds of reason is not a time relation 
In this case, that which determines the causality does not precede in time the action, because such determining grounds represent not a reference to objects of sense, e.g. to causes in the appearances, but to determining causes as things in themselves which do not rank under conditions of time. And in this way, the action with regard to the causality of reason can be considered as a first start in respect to the series of appearances, and yet also as a merely subordinate beginning. We may therefore without contradiction consider it in the former aspect as free, but in the latter, in so far as it is merely appearance, as subject to natural necessity. As to the fourth antinomy, it is solved in the same way as the conflict of reason, with itself in the third. For provided the cause in the appearance is distinguished from the cause of the appearance, so far as it can be thought as a thing in itself, both propositions are perfectly reconcilable. The one that there is nowhere in the sensuous world as cause, according to similar laws of causality, whose existence is absolutely necessary, the other that this world is nevertheless connected with a necessary being as its cause, but of another kind and according to another law. The incompatibility of these propositions entirely rests upon the mistake of extending what is valid merely of appearances to things in themselves, and in general confusing both in one concept. 54. This, then, is the proposition, and this the solution of the whole antinomy in which reason finds itself involved in the application of its principles to the sensible world. The former alone, the mere proposition, would be a considerable service in the cause of our knowledge of human reason, even though the solution might fail to fully satisfy the reader, who has here to combat a natural illusion, which has been but recently exposed to him, and which he had hitherto always regarded as genuine. For one result at least is unavoidable as it is quite impossible to prevent this conflict of reason with itself, so long as the objects of the sensible world are taken for things in themselves and not for mere appearances, which they are in fact. The reader is thereby compelled to examine over again the deduction of all or a priori cognition and the proof which I have given of my deduction in order to come to a decision on the question. This is all I require at present, for when in this occupation he shall have thought himself deep enough into the nature of pure reason, those concepts by which alone the solution of the conflict of reason is possible will become sufficiently familiar to him. Without this preparation, I cannot expect an unreserved assent even from the most attentive reader. End of section 7